1: According to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hello, my name is Sally Cade Holmes. I'm the managing director of Next Chapter Podcasts. Did you know that you can access behind the scenes interviews and ad free content via Play On Premium? For a mere $5 a month, you can support the artists of the Play On Podcasts in bringing you Shakespeare's timeless tales. Go to www.playonpodcasts.com and click Join Play On Premium today. I'm also excited to share a podcast that I think you'll enjoy. We're partnering with the folks over at Playing Anne Frank and are pleased to share an episode with you. Using archival material and interviews with surviving cast and crew members, Forward executive editor Adam Langer presents a story that's never been told, the backstory of The Diary of Anne Frank, the Pulitzer Prize-winning play, an Oscar-winning film, and how this iconic work shapes those involved in performing it, including high school students putting the show on today. The Diary of Anne Frank, which debuted on Broadway in 1955 and then later toured the country, was one of the most influential plays of the 20th century and a life-changing experience for many of those who saw it. It introduced millions of Americans to the Holocaust and its victims. But what did reenacting Anne's story mean to the people who created and acted in the play or the 1959 film? How did dramatizing her life affect their lives and careers? Who were they? In seven episodes, playing Anne Frank weaves together stories of art and culture and ultimately, deep humanity.
0: but we were not just in this plain old theater. It, would, it never felt like it was a plain old play. You know, it really felt like a responsibility.
1: We were really introducing a whole new world to
0: these people, people who had never met a Jew in their lives. It's an emotional train. You ride that train every night and twice on matinee days. It can be very crushing. It
2: kind of changed the way that I thought about history, and also the world.
0: I had sincerity. I wanted to play this girl who was this important person that I I empathized with and had been murdered by the Nazis. I wanted to play her right.
3: I don't know, I think in many
2: years I'll be able to sort of understand what the role meant to me a lot more than I can right now. You know, it's just something that I feel like I will
1: probably carry with me for my whole life.
4: I'm Adam Langer, the Forwards executive editor, and I'm the creator and host of this podcast series, Playing Anne Frank. It's about the dramatic life of The Diary of Anne Frank, the play that opened on Broadway in 1955, the one that toured America in the 1950s, the movie that came afterwards how they changed the lives of the people who were intimately involved in it. But before we get too far into their stories, we're gonna talk about where the original story came from and how it developed a life of its own. This is episode one, the drama behind the drama.
3: My name is Anna Frank. I am 13 years old. I was born in Germany, but since My family is Jewish. We emigrated to Holland when Hitler came to power. Things went well well for us until until the war came and the German German occupation. occupation. Then
1: Then things things got got very bad for the
3: Jews. Jews. You could not do this and you could not do that. We had to wear yellow stars.
4: You probably know the outline of Anne Frank's story, but I'm just going to go over a few basics. On Anne Frank's 13th birthday, June 12, 1942, Her dad gave her a diary. That same day, she wrote her first entry.
3: I hope I shall be able to confide in you completely, as I have never been able to do that in anyone before, and
0: I hope that you will be a great support and comfort to me.
4: The next month, Anne's sister Margaret was called to report to a Nazi labor camp. Instead, the family went into hiding in the secret annex. It was located above the herb and spice business Otto Frank had run. They lived there with another family, the Van Pelses. In the play and the movie, they're called the Van Dans. An elderly dentist came to live with them, too. Over the course of the next two years, Anne documented her day-to-day life, her hopes and her sorrows, the progress of the war, until the first week of August, 1944, when the Gestapo discovered her family. They took Anne, her mother, and her sister Margaret to Auschwitz. Their mother died there. Anne and Margit were taken to the forced labor camp, Bergen-Belsen. Both Anne and Margit died there of typhus in 1945. After the war, Anne and Margit's father, Otto Frank, the only family member who survived, went back to the family's secret annex. There, Meep Gies, she worked for Otto and helped the Franks hide from the Nazis, presented him with the diary she'd saved.
1: After hours, I don't know how long, came Ellie back my husband, and then we go upstairs in the hiding because I had a key, a double key. And that was a terrible, a terrible sight what we saw there.
4: That's Meep Keys. in a 1988 interview she did on CBS with Harry Smith.
1: All the cupboards were open. It was, it was a chaos. And we are looking, Ellie, me, my husband, And then we saw the diary from Anne Frank.
3: Meep gave me the diary, which had been saved by, I should say, a miracle.
4: That's Otto Frank, Anne's father, in 1967. He's talking to an interviewer on The Eternal Light, a show that was produced by the Jewish Theological Seminary and NBC.
3: It took me a very long time to read it, and I must say I was very much surprised about deep thoughts her had. Her uh, seriousness, especially her self-criticism. It was quite a different Anna I had known as my daughter. She never really showed this kind of inner feeling. She talked about many things. We criticized many things. But what really was her feelings were, I only could see from the diary.
4: The diary was published in Holland in 1947 under the title The Secret Annex. It sold a few thousand copies, and after that, Otto Frank found publishers for the book in Germany and France. Three years later, it caught the attention of an editor at Doubleday, Judith Jones, and she commissioned an English translation. The first mention of the book in the mainstream American press came in April 1952. That's when Eleanor Roosevelt wrote about it for her syndicated newspaper column. This diary, she wrote, should teach all the wisdom of preventing any kind of totalitarianism that could lead to oppression and suffering of this kind. Two months later, it was reviewed twice in two days in the New York Times. Once by Orville Prescott. He called it one of the most touching documents yet published about the agony and martyrdom of the many millions of Hitler's innocent victims. The second review was by a Jewish American writer from Chicago, Meyer Levin. Levin was a correspondent during the Spanish Civil War, and also during World War II, where he saw the horrors of the Holocaust up close. The Los Angeles Times once called him the most significant American Jewish writer of his time.
2: That he was writing these Jewish stories and sort of centering Jewish characters in a way that wasn't um, the norm, wasn't the practice. He was in there with Norman Mailer. He was at these parties. He was, he was a writer doing his thing, interacting with all these other writers.
4: That's Rina Graf. She's the author of a play called Compulsion. It fictionalized the story of Meyer Levin and how he became obsessed with Anne Frank and her diary.
2: Even his wife, who stayed with him towards the end, all through it, and was with him when he died, accepted that, this, that there was always gonna be this other thing present in the marriage, which was this obsession.
4: Meyer Levin first read Anne Frank's diary in French, and he became, well, obsessed with it. Here was the voice I was waiting for, he wrote later, the voice from the mass grave. On the front page of the New York Times Book Review, he raved about the diary. He called Anne Frank a born writer and said the book was an instant classic. It is so wondrously alive, he wrote, so near that one feels overwhelmingly the universalities of human nature. There was a second printing of 15,000 copies, then a third printing, 45,000. Regional newspapers serialized the diary, the Boston Globe, the Pittsburgh Press, the Minneapolis-Star Tribune. By August 1952, the book was a number one bestseller, and there was talk of turning it into a play or a movie.
0: What is the use of war? Why can't people live peacefully together?
4: It's the same answer, as
0: why do grown people always quarrel? Yes. Why do they still make more gigantic planes, still heavier bombs, and at the same time prefabricated houses for reconstruction? Why do some people starve while there are surpluses
2: rotting in the world?
4: That's a scene from the first adaptation of Anne Frank's diary. It was a radio play written by Meyer Levin, the one thing Levin hadn't mentioned in his New York Times review was that he had been in touch with Anne Frank's father, and he was already planning to adapt the diary. Levin's version premiered in 1952 on the radio show The Eternal Light. All stay up here tonight.
0: Sleep on the floor. If it's the Dutch police, they may
4: not give us
3: away. Unless an SS comes with them. They'll find Anne's diary. they would better burn it. Not my diary! If my diary goes, I go with it.
4: The story of how Meyer Levin came to adapt Anne Frank's diary, and ultimately wound up being taken off the project and replaced by two veteran Hollywood screenwriters, could make for a book or a play of its own. But it did. Levin wrote about his ordeal in a 1973 memoir called The Obsession. In 2010, Rinne play, Compulsion, debuted at Yale Repertory. Mandy Patinkin played an obsessed playwright, who wound up suing Otto Frank because he didn't get to do the theatrical adaptation. Which is what really happened with Meyer Levin. Here's a clip from that show, which featured Mandy Patinkin and Hannah Cabell.
2: You got more than most people in your situation could ever dream of.
1: Meaning I'm nowhere near as good a writer as she was. She
2: was a kid who kept a
1: diary. Still nothing I've written approaches her accomplishment. You want me to say you are a better writer than Anne Frank?
4: Meyer Levin was supposed to adapt Anne Frank's diary for the stage. But when a producer named Kermit Bloomgarden came on board and read Levin's script, he started having second thoughts. He asked the writer Lillian Hellman what she thought, and she said that Meyer Levin wasn't the right guy for the job. Too religious. Too dreary. And he was kind of a crank. The job wound up going to a veteran married screenwriting couple, Francis Goodrich and Albert Hackett. Everyone in Hollywood called them the Hackett's. The Hackett's had a lighter touch than Meyer Levin. They weren't known for serious drama, they wrote heartwarming comedies Father of the Bride, The Thin Man, Easter Parade, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Oh, and a little heartwarming Christmas movie with Jimmy Stewart that you might have seen once or twice, or a couple hundred times.
3: You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away?
4: The Hacketts weren't Jewish, by the way, which was one of a lot of things that pissed off Meyer Levin. He tried ingratiating himself to the couple. He invited them to dinner. When that didn't work, he sent them a four-page single-spaced letter detailing why he was the only one who knew how to get Anne Frank's story right. He took out an ad in the New York Post. He asked for a public reading of his script so people could judge for themselves whose was best. He lobbied rabbis and the American Jewish Congress. The whole thing wound up in court with Levin suing everyone, including Otto Frank. At one point, Levin challenged the producer to a duel. He hurled accusations of fraud, breach of contract, plagiarism. He demanded more than a million dollars in damages. He actually wound up winning 50000 Even so. Whenever this story gets told, Meyer Levin usually comes off like the villain. Suing Anne Frank's dad? It's not a great look. Still, if you're talking about The Diary of Anne Frank and how it changed people's lives, it changed Meyer Levin's as much as anybody's. More than changed Levin's life, really. The play came to define it. Didn't really matter, though. He wasn't writing The Diary of Anne Frank anymore. the Hackett's were. The story of two Jewish families hiding out from the Nazis, it didn't seem like a natural fit for the Hackett's. They were screenwriters, not playwrights. But that was kind of the point. The producers didn't want a play that would be unbearably grim. They wanted it to capture Anne Frank's spirit, her humor. And, though they didn't say it in these exact words, they didn't want the play to be too Jewish, either. They wanted a real Broadway show, with the power to cross over to the audiences that could make it a hit. That didn't mean they weren't taking the story seriously, though. I've been digging into the Hackett's archives. They're at the Wisconsin Historical Society. And when you read their letters and their drafts, you see how much they care, how much attention they put into getting every detail right. They debate the title of the play. Maybe it should be The Frank Play, or maybe The Hiding Place, they correspond with Otto Frank. They go back and forth over drafts. They want to make sure they're doing justice to the story. Otto Frank rejects one draft. They apologize and send another. They fly to Amsterdam to meet with him. They go to Anne's school, the apartment where the Franks lived, the secret annex where they hid. The director of the show was Garson Kanan. He'd written comedies like Born Yesterday and Adam's Rib.
3: That I'm right and you're wrong. Worthless, corrupt, mean, rotten, dirty, contemptible, little, petty, gruesome, contemptible. You said all that before. What?
4: Garson Kanan was Jewish, but he didn't have much more experience with tragedy or the Holocaust than the Hacketts had. What he did have was the same sort of attention to detail and commitment to getting Anne Frank's story right. And he had the right temperament, too. If you wanted someone to create a sensitive and humanistic drama, you needed a director who could make the cast of a Broadway show feel like a family. And everyone I've spoken to who knew Kanan and worked on the show says that's what he did.
0: Well, he was wonderful. He was was just great. It was very, very emotional because everybody got, you know, extremely involved in the the actual facts of the the thing.
4: That's Eva Rubinstein, who originated the role of Anne's sister, Margaret Frank. She's the daughter of the pianist Arthur Rubinstein. The Rubinstein's were good friends with Garson Kanan.
1: And we were always with grown-ups and, and sort of highfalutin grown-ups, you know, the pianists and conductors and authors and filmmakers and, you know, these sort of high artistic end people that our parents hobnobbed with. Uh, and Garson Kanin was one of those guys. He was one of the great storytellers that I've ever known.
4: That's Eva Rubenstein's brother, the actor, John Rubenstein. When he was a kid, he used to sit in on rehearsals for the plays Garson Kanin was directing.
1: It was all like afternoon tea. It was pleasant. We were all professionals in the room. They knew what they were doing. He was in control. I don't remember any arguments, but nor do I remember him expounding his whatever feeling about the scene or about the character or about the play. I don't remember any of that."
4: So, you could see what the producers were going for. They had writers who were known for comedy, a laid-back director, and they wanted the cast to feel like they belonged together. The first part they cast was Anne's father, Otto Frank. They chose Joseph Schulkraut. He was kind of an obvious choice. He was theater royalty. He was Austrian, he was Jewish, he'd won a Best Supporting Actor Oscar in 1938 for playing Captain Alfred Dreyfus in The Life of Emile Zola. He even looked and sounded a little like Otto Frank. Good evening, this is Joseph Schildkraut, your guide tonight on a most captivating journey into the land of intrigue. Who should play the other characters? That was less clear-cut. The director and the writers and the producer went back and forth over countless names for the roles of Peter Van Dan and Anne Frank. The guy some of them really wanted to play Peter was a young actor named Dennis Hopper.
1: I mean, what are they going to say, man, when he's gone, huh? Because he dies when it dies, man. When it dies, he dies. What are they going to say about him? What are they going to say? He was a kind man. He was a wise man. He had plans. He had wisdom. Bullshit, man!
4: That didn't happen. Hopper wanted to do the play, but he was already signed up to do the movie Giant with James Dean. The role went to a newcomer, Dan Levin, or Peter Dan Levin. The name changes here and there because of union rules. Dan Levin told me that Garson Kanan liked his performance, but there was a problem.
0: Well, his main note to me was stop crying, uh, because I thought it was so sad that uh i I just couldn't stop it and uh, but he told me to stop it and so i did uh because i knew they would all die except uh frank
4: for anne frank a lot of names were thrown around natalie wood came up in a lot of letters someone mentioned a french actress named Ariane borg turned out she was already 40. it went to susan strasberg who died in 1999. here she is in 1981 talking on fresh air about what the role meant to her.
3: And with Anne Frank, first of all, I was an adolescent. She was an adolescent. Second of all, it's interesting, we were the same birth sign. She was only 10 years older than me. Isn't that amazing?
1: Really, When I, I mean, played yeah.
3: that part, it seemed as if World War II was a million miles away. And recently I did something where we were celebrating her 52nd birthday, and I said, my God, I'm 42. shes I mean, we, we could have been friends.
4: For other roles, Keenan went by instinct and his approach was unassuming and a little bit unorthodox. I spoke to Arnold Margolin, who worked as assistant stage manager on the show and understudied the role of Peter Van Dan before he took it over. I asked Arnold how he wound up getting cast in Anne Frank.
0: I was a student at Columbia, and um, some upperclassmen were producing a play off-Broadway, and I... uh, I had a chance to do that because i was also at this time working as an office boy for a broadway producer i was assistant stage manager on this off Broadway play it was three one act plays by william saroyan it was called Floydada, to matador and saroyan was uh, part of the production i mean he came to participate in the rehearsals and so forth it opened up in a blizzard, I remember. I think it was New Year's or Christmas Eve or something. Right at the end of uh, 1950,
4: uh, five. This is a long story, so I'm going to condense it a bit. The actor Margolin was understudying, had to leave the show, so Margolin went on. He got a decent review, but the show closed after a few weeks, and he pretty much put it out of his mind. He was on his way back to Texas, which was where he was from, when he got a call.
0: I called the and they said, oh, Mr. Canaan wants to see you tomorrow at 1 at the Court Theatre. So, again, I didn't even ask. I assumed it was for an office boy job. And when I told the stage manager, there were a bunch of young men there reading scripts and getting ready to audition for something, and I told the stage manager who, he, who I was, and he said, oh, um, Mr. Canaan's been looking for you for six months.
4: Turned out Canaan had been in the audience of the Soroyan play during the blizzard.
0: So they went in. And that's when he saw me and remembered me, and so they wanted me to read. And I think the thing I said, which I later decided is what got me the job, is I said to him, "You know, I don't know if I really want to do this." And uh, uh, and I said, "Because I, you know, I don't. I wasn't planning on a career as an actor, and I'm apprenticing in the managers' union." And he said, "Well, you'll probably never get another chance to broad act on a Broadway show." And I said, "Okay, well." I'll I'll give it a shot. And so the stage manager said, do you want him to read now? And he said, no, if he wants the part, it's his. So I never even read for the damn thing.
4: The play opened in Philadelphia at the Walnut Street Theater in September, 1955, starring Susan Strasberg as Anne Frank and Joseph Schulkraut as her father. I'm not gonna list everyone in the cast because there were 10 of them, plus extras and understudies, but it was a mix of newcomers and veterans. Gustl Huber played Anne and Margaret Frank's mother. She was a bit of an odd choice. She was an Austrian actress and a one-time member of the Nazi Actors Guild, and she'd been married to a man who had served Hitler in the Wehrmacht. Meyer Levin tried to get Garson Kanin to recast the role, for obvious reasons. But when The Diary of Anne Frank opened in Philadelphia on September 15, 1955, Gustl Huber was still in it. The next month, it moved to the Court Theater on 48th Street for its Broadway opening. Arnold Margolin said the audience responded differently than they did at other Broadway shows.
0: You know, the whole uh, issue of the Holocaust, and that was very fresh, and of course, uh, the birth of Israel was also very fresh. And so, it felt very immediate. Most shows, you know, they... Oh, yes, the audience immediately begins to applaud. But that show, the curtain would come down and there would just be silence.
4: Hale Gabrielson, the actress who played Meep Geese, remembered the same thing. People didn't know whether they were supposed to clap or not.
0: I mean, we had moments in the theater where the curtain would close and there wasn't a sound in the audience. And I remember one time, that I think it was so profound the sound. And that uh, the actors were nervous, you know, thinking, what's, what's wrong? And it was just the audience was so stricken by what they had seen and what they had lost. It's the, the loss of, of the child and their family.
4: The Diary of Anne Frank won the 1956 Pulitzer Prize for Drama. The Tonys, the New York Drama Critics Circle, the National Critics Poll, and Theater Club Incorporated, they all said it was the best American play of the year. In the Herald Tribune, Walter Kerr called it a radiant play, as bright and shining as a banner. Life Magazine called it the most moving play to emerge from World War II. Walter Winchell said, your heart will never forget it. Few playgoers, the Philadelphia Inquirer wrote, will be able to see The Diary of Anne Frank and fail to be moved by it. That was true for the audience, and it was true for the people who made it. In some cases, you could almost say that the show was the thing that saved them. We'll talk more about that on the next episode of Playing Anne Frank. You've been listening to Playing Anne Frank. I'm Adam Langer. I'm the executive editor of The Forward. I wrote and created this podcast. It was produced and engineered by Cole Ocasio. Our associate producer is Sila Shaman. She composed the original score, which features Anat Cohen on clarinet. Playing Anne Frank is a production of the Forward. Our editor-in-chief is Jody Rodoren, and our CEO is Rachel Fishman-Fedderson. Playing Anne Frank is made possible in part by funding from Canvas, the Cy Sims Foundation, and Barbara Streisand. Our consulting producers are Julian Hausler, Doug Matica, and Jerome Kramer. Additional editing and research by Samuel Breslow, Irene katz Connolly, Mira Fox, PJ Grissar, Beth Harpaz, and Matt Littman. The Forward's VP of Development is Lisa Lepson. Our Grants Manager is Jason Mandel. Our Digital Innovation Director is Jacqueline Debonis. Designed by Anya Ulunich and Angelie Zaslavsky. Special thanks to Stephanie Abu, Marie Kuhlman, Elizabeth Ellis, Jay Ehrlich, Gwit Lacasio, Daniel Liddell, Charlie Meyerson, Lauren Allerhead, Dalia Shaman, Solvej Zisnich, and to Lauren Passell of Tink Media and Talia Zacks. The Forward Association is a 501c3 nonprofit organization founded in 1897.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming.